0: Hello, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy, space science. Um, You know, we can solve some of your pet problems. We can do all sorts of things. As long as you're not sending them up in a uh, Sputnik-like rocket or anything like that, we might have some advice for your pets, but not today. Uh, We've got plenty on. We're going to talk about uh, a new discovery by the James Webb Space Telescope, Uh, It seems to have analysed the uh, atmosphere of an exoplanet and what they found was astonishing. We're also going to look at the true shape of our galaxy and it's, um, yeah, it's not for soccer fans. (laughs) Uh, And and with the World Cup on, I thought we would have been there, but no, not at all. And we're uh, going to answer questions about Jodrell Bank and, surprise, surprise, dark matter and black holes, all coming up on the very next edition, this one. (laughs) Of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9,
1: ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2,
0: 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, five 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me to tell all is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Fancy seeing you here. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Yeah. It's a strange place for me to be in my office well, with right. Space all nuts. my bits and bobs yeah. over my shoulders. There's my, there's my Space Nuts tote bag. Very and my good. Space Nuts. And I'm wearing my Space Nuts oh, t shirt. On the, on the, where's your mug? Yeah. Where's your mug? Uh, um, it's over there. <laughs> oh, oh, hang on. <laughs> there it is. It's just creeping into view. There. Yes. Yeah, got yes. my got my mic. Yeah. Oh, there it is. I'll leave it in. I'll leave it in shot. <laughs> with all those uh fourth and fifth place trophies and behind me as well. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few uh, uh,
1: the hauling ones
0: there. Uh, three Several of, of them, yeah, yeah. Three. Yeah. All very different. Mm. Um how have you been? Busy. Um oh, I'm
1: sure. Yes. We have a VIP visit from uh, senior members of the European Southern Observatory. are touring Australia next week. And, oh, they um, finally found us. They found us, and yeah. I'm looking after them for the week, or at least accompanying them, uh, as we visit a, a lot of uh, major astronomical centres in Australia, starting with Perth and then going on to Canberra, sadly missing out Melbourne and Adelaide. We couldn't fit those in, nor Brisbane, but winding up in Sydney.
0: Uh, oh, so they don't get to see the great Melbourne telescope?
1: They don't. No, no. they don't. But that's because it's called GMT, and GMT is also the Giant Magellan Telescope, which is one of hey. their competitors. So <laughs> they wouldn't want to do that. No. So Fair it's been. A, it's but we're in the final stages of arranging all that, and um, at least I hope we are. Uh, They all wind up at our house, actually, Andrew. They'll they'll be in this very room in in exactly a week, a week
0: tomorrow uh, for dinner. Um, So, yeah, work that one out. (laughs) We should get them all on for an episode. That would be a
1: Ah, spanking good time.
0: I I think their schedule is just too crowded already, but it's a great idea. I wouldn't impose, Mm. Fred. I know Mm. how busy you are, so uh, maybe some other time. Maybe some other time. Yes. yes. All right, let's uh, get down to today's topics. And first up, uh, another revelation by the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, and it's uh, it's gone back to a planet at it- Sort of looked at very early on after it was uh, uh, made operative or operational, and we've uh, made some in- amazing discoveries. You and me personally, <laughs> go to be, use. We've read it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, you're right. It's uh, WASP thirty nine B, which, um, if I remember rightly, we saw a spectrum of very early on in the piece, which yeah. had uh, traces of water vapor in it, uh, and and shortly after that, the first. Uh, unequivocal detection of carbon dioxide in the um, atmosphere of an exoplanet, and I think that was also WASP-39b. The latest results, though, are, you know, they were pretty impressive, what we've heard so far, but the ones that we're seeing now are really quite staggering because the web, using its infrared uh, equipment in a way that lets you investigate the atmosphere of this planet as it passes in front of its parent star. Um, And so what you can do is you can look uh, at the spectrum of the star on its own and then look at the spectrum of the star with the planet in front of it. Uh, And that means that some of the starlight is being filtered through the atmosphere of the planet. Um, And you can actually tell the difference between the two. And the difference between the two is the signature of the compounds and elements within the uh, within the atmosphere of the planet, and so there's just this wealth of information that is that is turned up, um, including a direct com- confirmation of the carbon dioxide. Uh, the uh, water shows up as well. I'm looking for the list because I've. Got a list somewhere here of all the new things that have discovered in this, and I can't find it. But I do know uh, that one of the things that has excited people is the fact that they've detected sulfur dioxide, Mm.
0: Uh,
1: and that surprised uh, surprised the scientists. Um, There's a nice nice quote here uh, from Diana Powell, who's a NASA Hubble fellow uh, and an astronomer at the Center for Astrophysics. was, um, uh, at, at Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. Sorry, mumbling here. Yeah, uh, no, you're right. She says this surprising detection of sulphur dioxide finally confirms that photochemistry shapes the climate of hot Saturns because I should have mentioned that WASP-39b is about Saturn size, but it's hotter and it's also okay. fluffier. It's puffed up.
0: It's all right. I was going to ask you. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I am useful, you know. No, no, you,
1: you, look, you're my you're my <laughs> lifebelt, Andrew, because when I garble on about things and forget to mention the you know the most important ingredient that we're talking about a star, not a planet or something like that, uh, you're there to catch yeah. the the uh, loose ball, which is great. Um, so, but that you know that that surprising detection is. Uh, something that's, um, as, I, as she said, it highlights photochemistry. Uh, she goes on to say, Earth's climate is also shaped by photochemistry. So our planet is more in common with hot with hot Saturns than we previously knew. Uh, it's um, something that's got the, you know, of course, because if you've got chemistry like this that's being affected by, uh, by the sunlight, that's what photochemistry means. You've got you've got light actually affecting the chemical reactions. Then it, it sort of opens up a whole possible range of things that might be going on in the atmosphere of planets like this, where you could perhaps get some really interesting uh, and highly suggestive molecules uh, being formed. Mm. Um, the other things that have been discovered include. Uh, Spectrum of potassium, so there's an element. There's lots of evidence of water. There's carbon monoxide. That's a new oh. one too, uh, um, as well as the carbon dioxide that I... That
0: explains the runaway greenhouse effect.
1: Uh, yep. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, car- uh, sulfur dioxide, as I've mentioned, carbon dioxide, uh, again, carbon mon- monoxide. These these uh, molecules all have individuals uh, multiple signatures, if I can put it that way. If you think about yep. the barcode of of a spectrum. Uh, It's different imprints uh, come from different uh, uh, compounds and elements, but they're uh, often repeated in certain ways. Uh, So um, the sodium as well is present, which is probably less of a surprise. Uh, Mm. But, uh, yeah, water, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and this sulfur dioxide are perhaps the really interesting uh, molecules that that have now been found in WASP-39b. And uh, there's... There's a, I guess, um, as I said, the the excitement is that you've got photochemistry going on. But I think what is also exciting is that as the web hones its techniques, it means that uh, we're going to be even more sensitive to the components of the atmospheres of objects like this. And I'm sure it's looking at other planets around other stars, which are not hot hot Saturns, uh, Mm. and we'll find much more. Uh, In fact, I think the... um, the group who's, who've done this work at um, Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics, they are, are looking to the day when they might observe the atmospheres of, of more Earth-like planets. And they've highlighted uh, the TRAPPIST-1 system, which, if I remember rightly, has got s- is it seven planets around it. We've talked about TRAPPIST yes. before. Yeah. Um, so um, it might be four. I can't remember whether it's four or seven. But these are rocky planets, and so... Uh, they too will probably have atmospheres, and you can use this same technique to probe the atmospheres of these planets. It's actually a a bit more difficult because the atmospheres are almost certainly thinner than the atmosphere of Mm. Saturn.
0: But it's exciting, isn't it, that the the prospect is there for us to learn so much. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we didn't even know about exoplanets. We just assumed they're probably out there. Probably there, that's right. Now we've discovered over 5,000 and there's another... 3,000 4, and 4,000 to catalogue, and yeah, the list will just keep growing, I imagine. I think that's uh, right, yeah. There's actually another lovely quote from another of the scientists this time at
1: the University of California, uh, somebody called uh, Natalia Batala, uh, who says, we observe the exoplanet with multiple instruments that together provide a broad swathe of the infrared spectrum and a panoply of chemical fingerprints inaccessible until JWST. Mm -hmm. Uh, And data like these are a game changer, which is, I think is absolutely right. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Um, It's one of the things that JWST was built for, the Webb Telescope, uh, to look at the atmospheres of exoplanets, but it's it's clearly uh, stonking home with a great uh, deal of new discoveries uh, when we're still only in the first year of, you know, well, within know. the first year of observations.
0: Yes, absolutely. And WASP-39b, it's it's a strange planet. It is very hot, uh, 30, uh, 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Uh, mainly a hydrogen atmosphere, but all that other stuff that we were just talking about. It's eight times closer to its host star than Mercury is <laughs> to our <laughs> yes, sun. That's right. And it's got the mass of Saturn but the size of Jupiter.
1: Yeah, uh, and it's, that's just that's just weird it's very weird um it's seven hundred light years away as well, which is um uh you know not close by in in terms of what you can do with these things so it's a very mm. weird place and i think you could categorize it as being not a very nice place to visit really would no uh,
0: probably not very habitable at all no no um but yeah you know, it's great that they've revisited something that they started out with and and been able to collate even more data and as you said being able to uh hone in on some rocky planets in yeah. uh, that trappist sector uh will be very exciting because uh, with that many rocky planets it, you know the the potential is there to find something extraordinary that'd be uh, well worth talking about and investigating further uh and and obviously we've we've been looking at the trappist um uh planets for a long time because they, they've been popping up in mm. science fiction shows as potential <laughs> worlds for uh, yeah. habitation going forward. And, you know, um, I, we if we're still around in a billion years, we probably will have to find somewhere else to live because um, our sun will get too bright for us before it goes red giant on us. But, um, you know, uh, maybe the Trappist zone will be, Worth investigating. But who knows? I mean, the, the more we investigate, the more we're going to find. and the, uh, It's only a matter of time, Fred, before we find an Earth-sized planet that's not unlike our own. It's got
1: to be out there. In the Goldilocks zone of a normal star. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's, um, certainly there are some candidates for that, but we we don't know with enough certainty yet. To be able to say there's an Earth 2.0 out there.
0: No, they haven't found one yet, but they keep talking about these super-Earths, which are rocky planets that are, you know, much bigger than our own. We couldn't live on those. The gravity would kill us. So, you know, we've got to find a candidate that's as close to ours as it can be, and then we've got to figure out how to get there if we ever need to, and (laughs) that's, that's an even bigger problem.
1: Uh, that's the tricky. If bit.
0: it's ever solvable, mm. well,
1: you could if you if you could build a powerful enough spacecraft and accelerate it to nearly the speed of light. Uh, yes. Then you're talking about hundreds of years rather than hundreds of thousands of years, yeah. uh, which uh, you'd need if you use chemical standard chemical rockets. But it is, mm. yeah. this yeah. And then pesky speed of it, light
0: well, thing. Well, you'd you'd then have to take a a couple of approaches to transport. Um, intergenerational yep, that's right. uh, approach so or, or, or cryogenics or frozen embryos or so who knows um with robots doing all the work sounds a but to, to 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 um activate us when we land <laughs> could be any of those things yeah indeed. but uh yes yeah, um but that's a fascinating find by james webb and uh, one that's um well worth reading up if you want to chase up the the paper i'm sure it's um been listed somewhere, I'm just trying to find it, Uh, Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. Is that right? Yes, indeed Mm. it is. There you go. All right, Uh, there'll be more to report on that and uh, other planets that uh, become uh, the focus of attention of James Webb, and we'll be uh, certainly bringing that to you when they reveal more information. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we go from one study to another, and this one has revealed the shape of our um, uh, galaxy. Uh, and this includes not only the stars, but all the junk around it. So, everything. So, what's its shape like? <laughs> football, basically. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and and not, not the round football. Not, not so, some ball. people call soccer football. Yeah.
1: yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. Yeah the UK.
0: Well, most, most people who play the game, except Australians, call it um, football. We call it soccer here because we've got four codes of football, yes. which is very confusing.
1: <laughs> I'm still confused about that. Anyway, yeah. the so the, the idea of a, a halo of stars sort of surrounding the galaxy, stars and other objects, I have to say, uh, goes back a long, long way uh, to when you know scientists were first studying the, the geography of our galaxy. Um, mm. we, we, we've got the basic idea that it's a disk, and you get that just by looking at the Milky Way itself, because it's a, a, a bright region of many, many stars, many billions of stars, which are concentrated into a reasonably small uh, line on the sky. So uh, that tells you that we're embedded in this disk of stars and gas and dust, Uh, and in particular, they're young stars. But then, um, and and I can't remember, I think uh, a scientist called uh, Walter Bader, Walter Bader, as it was anglicized to, during about the time of the Second World War, I think he did a lot of work on on the idea that there is a much less dense, perhaps more tenuous uh, uh, cloud of stars in which the disk is embedded, this halo. Uh, mm. And uh, Bada showed that they are old stars. Uh, in fact, he called them Population 2 to compare them with Population 1, which are stars more or less like the sun, ones with the same sort of amount of chemical elements in it. Uh, the yeah. the uh, halo stars are this population which are thought to be much older. Um, um, more recent work suggests that the halo is something that galaxies collect over time because they—it's where the debris of smaller galaxies that have been swallowed up by the big ones—where they wind up. Uh, and we, in the RAVE survey that I was involved with um, a decade or so ago, uh, we certainly saw evidence of streams of stars that had, uh, you know—they were all moving in the same direction, and uh, the likelihood is that they were members of a of a. Galaxy that's been gobbled up by our own galaxy and found themselves in the halo. So, uh, the natural way that we've always thought of the halo is as a, basically as, a, if not a sphere, a kind of flattened sphere. So, what you might call a spheroid, something uh, yeah. that's, um, you know, flatter at its poles than it is around its equator because it's rotating. Um, mm. But this new work has shown that, oh, dear me, no, there's more to it than that. Um, and uh, so the, basically they've used uh, several major data sets uh, that have been collected recently, and the first one is perhaps the most important, uh, and that's the Gaia Space data. So Gaia, which was launched, actually, it's nearly 10 years ago that Gaia was launched. It's astonishing because uh, it still seems like a very new um, a very new spacecraft to me. It was launched in 2013. Um, what it's done is it measured really accurate positions in the sky of stars. Um, so not just in our own galaxy. They've been able to measure the exact positions on the sky of stars in the for example, the Magellanic Clouds, the nearby uh, dwarf galaxies. And because you can measure positions so precisely, you can actually detect the motion of these stars sort of across your line of sight. So Gaia has turned out to be brilliant at telling us about the motions of objects and also telling us uh, indirectly about the distances of objects. So you can make a three-dimensional plot. Um, and that's been compiled compiled with another survey of, um of of stars uh, this one conducted on the ground uh, at a telescope called the MMT the multiple mirror telescope because it was uh, when it was built i think it had seven mirrors a bit like the giant magellan telescope will have uh, all focusing to a common point it's on mount graham uh, in arizona and i think it now has a single mirror but it's still called the MMT uh, so they've gathered huge uh, numbers of observations of halo stars that are actually too, too, basically too faint for Gaia to see, because Gaia's only got a small telescope on board. Uh, but what it can do with brightish objects is remarkable. Uh, but you need ground-based observations to look at the fainter ones, and they've put all of these data into this model, um, and basically they've looked at the way uh, you know the stars are dis- distributed, and indeed uh what they get is not a sphere they get this football shape that i mentioned before uh which is sort of confirmed by other uh work for example if you uh if you have a you know build a computer model of how you expect a galaxy to form and how you expect its halo to form you end up with a football uh and so this this um Works really well. That uh, uh, you've you've got a football shaped halo, and actually the um the research, the modelling suggests that it formed uh, when a dwarf galaxy kind of clouted our galaxy probably seven to ten billion years ago, um, and well the, the, <laughs> the scientists are so sure that this happened that they've they've given this poor deceased dwarf galaxy a name, uh, which is called. Um, the Gaia sausage Enceladus, uh, (laughs) because uh, the Gaia refers to that spacecraft. Uh, Sausage is kind of what it looks like when you plot the Gaia data. I've heard people talk about the Gaia sausage before, Uh, but Enceladus, of course, the mythological uh, person, giant who's buried under a mountain, so they call it that because, uh, the, you know, this this dwarf galaxy was buried in the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the, the best theory for the origin of our halo, uh, at least one big galaxy collision. And uh, it, it all ties in very nicely together that we've got this, this um, you know, it's, it essentially stretched out sphere uh, of stars around the galaxy. And I think the other thing it plays into, and I'm sure you're waiting for, for me to finally get to this Andrew is the dark matter halo Uh, because we think that all galaxies have uh, a halo of dark matter in which they're embedded and that's why they don't fall to bits because of their spin Uh, and so the uh, the there is the new results uh, fit in well with what we know about the dark matter halo and uh, that probably means that the dark matter halo is also football shaped which is really quite remarkable
0: yeah. Does this suggest that our galaxy is somewhat new, unique or would this be more common, given that you talk about a collision that created this scenario? Yeah,
1: we, we commonly see evidence in other galaxies for exactly this process taking place. There's a lovely set of images made actually by an amateur astronomer who's a very capable astrophotographer. I hope he'll forgive me because I can't. Pull his the name of his observatory to mind. Yet anyway, um, it shows exactly this. It shows a galaxy edge-on. Uh, at least one of them does, and some of the other images have similar things. A galaxy kind of edge-on with streams of stars uh, all at perpendicular to the edge-on uh, disk of the galaxy. And so, what you're seeing there is this process taking place: the formation of a halo by something smaller being swallowed up by it. Um, uh, it it's it's called tidal disruption. That's the the formal uh-huh. name of this process because it's the tidal effect of our galaxy, the big galaxy, on the small one that stretches it out into a string of stars. It's a kind of gentle version of spaghettification, Andrew. Uh, the same thing that occurs when you get too near a black hole, which we probably mm. will be doing in a few minutes. Uh-huh.
0: Why? Why would? Oh, because someone's asking a yes. question about black holes. Yes, sorry. <laughs> Completely, I thought. Hang on a minute. What have, what have I missed? Does he know something uh, I don't know? <laughs> no. Yeah. No. <laughs> no I mean, yeah. Fair enough. Mm. Um, yeah, it? because we can't see our galaxy no. from the outside. We so we we're right in it, yeah. and we have to kind of work out the shape of it through um, through other means and. I mean, we can look at other galaxies and that gives us a clue. But going forward, does this revelation uh, give us something to work with to maybe solve other problems or issues? Yeah. Or you know, I think it does. Um, the, so y- y-
1: you're absolutely right there, Andrew, about the fact that we're embedded in the galaxy, which makes it really hard. And to, to sort of map the halo is even harder than mapping the disk because in the disk you've got clouds of cold hydrogen which Mm. can be picked up by radio telescopes and are not obscured by dust and you can actually map them very accurately. This was done back in the 1950s by uh, Jan Oort in the Netherlands and others, uh, who first demonstrated that our galaxy has spiral arms. Uh, But the halo doesn't have any of that hydrogen. It's just just this colossal um, aggregation of stars, which we think are more dense towards the middle. Uh, Very little to get a handle on to map it. And that's why it's taken so long to figure out that yeah, it's a football. Uh, I think the technique that's being used for this, uh, as well as some of the, the conclusions, particularly about the dark matter halo, will definitely have implications for, for future research. I'm
0: sure mm, okay.
1: Um, gee, we're learning a lot today. For a... We are, we are, we're also learning that my neighbour seems to be, um, I think he's mowing his grass, which might be what you can hear in the background there. I can't hear anything. Oh, that's very good, very
0: good. Well, that's probably more because my wife thinks I'm going deaf. But um, <laughs> no, it could be. It could be another reason. I don't it could give de- much. It could be.
1: Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's not marital deafness, is it? That sort of deafness. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good name the, for the, it. The yes, dear, one sort of thing. When yeah, selective de- deafness. Selective that's what deaf. it is. Yes.
0: That's, that's right. I'll be deaf for the next five minutes, but then I'll be able to hear again yes. later. Yeah. All right. Um, now that's a great revelation. And if you want to read about it, you can go to the fizz.org website and find the story, The Tilt of Our Stars. It's all there. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here. Fred Watson over there yeah. somewhere. Mm-hmm. Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. What a nice voice. Yes, it is it's lovely. Yeah, if you listen to Astronomy Daily, you might have recognised Oh, it. That's, is that who it is? That's our AI reporter, Hallie. Hallie, yeah. Good on Hallie, her. Hallie, yes. Yeah, she, seems, she sounds lovely. Uh, she has a moment. Uh, she can be a bit feisty. Does she suffer from marital de- deafness
1: or anything similar? She's to... not
0: married. No. Um, but she keeps telling me all about these guys that try to date her, one named Hal. And I told her, to, and I warned her off. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah. That's a good idea.
1: Keep yeah. away from him.
0: <laughs> anyway, they, they've decided they just want to be friends. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we might hear from her from time to time. We're going to hear from some people now who have questions for us, Fred. And if I just skip my list, we're going to try and bump off three questions. Uh, this first one has a um, – I, I love this question mainly because of the preamble. Yeah. So um, th- this is Carl.
1: Hi, Andrew and Fred. Carl from the UK here, Ripon, North Yorkshire. Just wanted to say thank you for all you do. Me and my dad, Brian, listen to all your content. We have the Space Nut mugs and T-shirts which we use with pride. My dad and I have just visited Jodrell Bank for a day, and we absolutely loved it. Question for Fred: Can you tell us any stories you have that been involved with Jodrell Bank? All the best, guys, Carl and his dad.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. Thank you, Carl, and hi, Brian, and, and thanks for supporting Space Nuts and um, you know, uh, getting all the all the bits and bobs that you, you know, the mug and the, uh, get a tote bag. There's there's one there. I'll send you mine um the t-shirts yeah that's great good on you oh that's you know we're chuffed aren't we Fred
1: we are Yeah, it's fantastic to hear about um, all that and I hope Carl's merchandise fits in better than mine fits me which is yeah, what I don't often yeah, wear it that's
0: one thing I, I'll remind <laughs> people if you go if you get a, a polo shirt in American sizes which are much bigger yeah than the Australian sizes so if you're normally an extra large order a large yeah yeah. Because I ordered an extra large and like, have a look.
1: No, you, no <laughs> that, like a- that looks normal compared with mine. You
0: could get both you and me in
1: mine, Andrew, because <laughs> it's an XL, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, so anyway, wow. that's all right. Marnie yeah, always says, that- she always says, it looks as though you're wearing your dad's shirt. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's actually, important, so an important safety tip. Carl um, could give it to his dad, but if it's a. Yeah, then yeah. Then it would be wearing. No, never mind. Anyway. Um, my connection with Jodrell Bank, its uh, I'm sure Carl will be surprised to hear this, and I'm almost ashamed to say it on Space Nuts, but for all, um, Jodrell Bank has been built into my soul since 1957 when the Lovell Telescope was dedicated. Uh, it was an almost single-handed achievement by a gentleman by the name of Sir Bernard Lovell, who was one of the great scientists of the era in the in the time when I was growing up, everybody respected Sir Bernard Lovell because he managed to persuade uh, a motor car company to fund his telescope and uh, oh. did all kinds of really novel things like picking up Sputnik 1 before anybody else did. Uh, wow. Really quite remarkable stuff because that was 1957 as well. Um, yeah. But having said all that, the nearest I've got to Jodrell Bank is being able to see the dish dish from the M6 uh, when you're doing 70 miles an hour. <laughs> some extraordinary speed, 100 kilometres an hour, and trying to look through the trees that line the M6 to see whether the dish of the Jodrell Bank telescope is, is visible or not, because sometimes it's not. It's only visible when it's kind of looking at the horizon, so the, uh, the arc of the dish sticks up above the trees. But uh, I get every time I go down the M6, I risk life and limb by trying to find the telescopes. You've got to know exactly where to look. However, that distance is probably coming to an end next year um, because uh one of Marnie's tours, we're planning to take in the Jodrell Bank telescope. Uh, assuming the Director General lets us, but since he used to work alongside me uh here in Australia, Phil Diamond, um maybe I can, you know, pull in a few mates, rates right? so or some something like that. You never um b- but the the thing about Jodrell Bank, so it's not far from Manchester, it's uh it's not that far from Riponway. Carl and his dad are either. Rippon's lovely, by the way. It is a gorgeous place. And I'll mention one other astronomical connection that it has in a minute. Uh, but what I was going to say was, Jodrell Bank is also now the home of the headquarters of the Square Kilometre Array Observatory. So that institution is a three-nation facility. Uh, it's got its low-frequency telescopes in Western Australia, or it will have when they're built. Its mid- yep. mid-frequency telescopes are on the High in South Africa uh, they have there two they too are being built, but the headquarters is at Jodrell bank and so what you what you tend to get when you're mixed up with ska skaO the observatory is photographs that show uh, that, that show the um, South African telescopes uh, as an artist's impression there under a beautiful clear blue sky. They show mm-hmm. the Australian telescopes. As an artist's impression under a beautiful clear Australian sky. And they show the Jodrell Bank dish under a clear blue sky, which oh. I don't think has ever happened uh, <laughs> there that near to Manchester. Um, I'm sure it's a Photoshop job, and I keep telling people, you can't show that. It's that's not nobody'd think Britain. <laughs> that's false information. False information. Just very briefly, uh the Uh, Other connection that astronomy has with Ripon, where Carl and his dad live, is that the tomb of Charles Piazzi Smythe is there, who you probably won't recognise, but he was, I think he was the second, he might have been the third, Astronomer Royal for Scotland. And the first person who discovered that you need to be on a mountaintop to do good astronomy, he actually went and observed on Tade, which is a, a volcanic, mountain uh in Tenerife in the Canary Islands and realized that how stunning the viewing is from a mountaintop but towards the end of his life he got a bit hooked on uh, the magical powers of pyramids he went slightly wonky and so his his headstone is not actually a headstone it's a pyramid quite a large pyramid it's in one of the churchyards in Ripon which I have visited rather than not having visited so Carl I'm sure you know about that but if you if you don't go and have a look
0: yeah That's worth a weekend visit. Yeah, it
1: It take five minutes. Yeah, and Rippon's a lovely spot anyway, so Mm.
0: worth going. All right. Lovely to hear from you, Carl and uh, Brian. And, uh, yes, um, short story is Fred's never been to the Bank. (laughs) But I love the place. I love it dearly. Mm. Uh, I haven't either, but I've got a much better excuse than you. You've got a better excuse than me. Yeah, you have. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) All right, uh, let's move on to our uh, next question from Leon. Hello, Fred and Andrew. Leon from Canberra here. Love your show. Uh, forgive me for another dark matter question. If we know about dark matter because of its gravitational effects, does it or could it, dark matter, clump together to form its own stars and galaxies? Wow. That is a really fascinating idea, Leon. Thank you. Uh, What do you reckon, Fred? Um, Well,
1: dark matter stars, yeah, I think people have talked about that possibility, but Mm. um, not ones that would, uh, unlike normal matter and most of it's hydrogen, when that collapses under its own gravity, the temperature goes up and the hydrogen fuses to helium and you've got, And, you know, you've got a star uh, because it's radiating the excess energy. Um, With a dark matter star, maybe what you just end up with is a a very um, intense concentration of these these dark matter particles, whatever they are. Now, uh, I'm not, of course, an expert on the details of dark matter because I'm not an expert on the details of anything except a few things that I was involved with. Back in the day, but um, I think it's likely that we'll find that there are more than one species of dark matter particle. Mm. Uh, there might be multiple ones, in the same way as we've got multiple particles in the in the normal world. You know, the baryonic world, as it's called, where we can see the quarks and the electrons and the, uh, the photons, all these sort of particles that, that we recognise. Maybe dark matter has a similar suite of particles, which might be able to react with each other in curious ways that we don't really know about. So there might be dark matter stars that do something other than shine. I don't know what it would be. Um, But to cut to the chase, to the bit that we are certain of, yes, dark matter does clump into things the size of galaxies, um, because that's how we think the galaxies in our universe formed in the early Uh, stages of the universe you've got dark matter which clumps together it acts as a kind of gravitational source which pulls in the hydrogen the hydrogen forms the stars and the galaxies are formed out of that aggregation of stars so what you end up with is a visible galaxy inside um a a big ball of dark matter football shaped of course yes Um, so um in fact, one of my colleagues, I think it's, I think it was Matthew Collis who made this comment, described galaxies as beacons of light on hills of dark matter. And um, when you look at the gravitational distribution, that's what they look like: the, the dark matter hills on which these bright objects, the galaxies themselves, sit. The bit that we can see.
0: So it does clump together. Yes, but whether or not it does anything other than hold galaxies together, um, we don't know. We don't know. No, we don't. No. So the answer is for Leon, maybe. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's better than no, which was the answer to Carl's question.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Mm. All right. Thank you, Leon. Hope all is well in Canberra. Sorry you have to live with politicians. Yeah. Now, uh, let's. <laughs> They're let's okay. On. I was
1: with them the day before yesterday at the Prime Minister's yeah. Science Prizes. They're all right.
0: Yes. One of my former employees. From uh, uh, my previous life is now a politician. So I used to be his boss, and now he's um, yes, yeah. Now he's a, a member of parliament. He, he is. A, in <laughs> fact, he's a minister. Actually, I
1: heard him on the. He ra- is a minister. I heard him yes. on the radio yesterday. Um, yes, I was indeed. Back from
0: camera, yes. <laughs> he's uh, he's pretty good at doing radio interviews as politicians. It would be <laughs> the funny thing is he used to interview politicians and get really frustrated when they wouldn't give him an answer, and yeah. now no. <laughs> he's he's learned how to do it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yep,
0: yep. <laughs> uh, he's a good egg. Uh, I yeah got a lot of time for him, um, which is good because we worked together for many years. All right, uh, let's go to our final question for today, and this one is about black holes. Surprise, surprise. Andrew and Fred, this is Bill Bogan from Ann Arbor, Michigan, with a question about black holes, like everybody else. <laughs> so I was playing with the equation for escape velocity, you know, square root of two gr, and I thought well, is it possible to have a dense object like a neutron star of a certain size where the escape velocity would be greater than the speed of light? So you wouldn't have to have a singularity to have a black hole. And I'd come up with like a neutron star that's 40 kilometers in radius would would be essentially a black hole. So what am I doing wrong? Thanks. All right, Bill. I don't know if you heard the clunking in the background. That was Fred. (laughs) Working with his cuisine actually to try and figure this one you
1: know, out. I, you, you'll, you'll be you 're not far off what I was trying to do there, <laughs> um, Andrew, because i 'm um, conscious that we 're on YouTube, and so i shouldn 't just disappear and About ten minutes ago, my pen fell off the table <laughs> I, and and I wanted to write that Bill was from Ann Arbor. Oh,
0: and the only right. thing
1: I could find to write with was the lead of a pencil that happens <laughs> to be on my desk, so just the lead. So, <laughs> so that's what I was using to write. Uh, it came yeah. out of this, which is a clutch pencil that doesn't work anymore, so it fell oh, out. Oh, right, so. yeah, yeah. Anyway, it says, it could be Ann Arbor, I think, that says there. <laughs> mm, that's a beautiful part of the world, is it not? I believe so. Uh, it's not yeah. somewhere I've been. It shares with Jodrell Bank the honour of not having been visited by friend mm, Watson. Mm. Um, But, yeah, we should run a tour there sometime. I think it is a beautiful part of the world. Yeah. But a great question, and I think you need a – you basically need an expert in general relativity to give the proper answer. But I think uh, that the answer is that for extremely intense gravitational fields like this, the normal formula for a – an escape velocity simply doesn't work, because you've got to have relativistic components in it. Uh, And the kind of thing I'm thinking of um, is just to to give you an example of the way this sort of thing tends to work. If you imagine uh, two objects approaching one another, uh, and each one of them is traveling at 2 thirds of the speed of light. Uh, or thereabouts, or nearly, let's say nearly the speed of light, does that mean that the their closing speed is nearly twice the speed of light, uh, which can't be because you can't do anything faster than the speed of light? And the answer is no, because there's a relativistic term that comes in there, which usually looks like some something like 1 minus V over R, uh, C squared, where C is the, is the speed of light itself. And I suspect... Uh, I've had a quick look online. Um, come up with a paper called "A Relativistic Escape Velocity Maximum of Light Speed," uh, which uh, does indeed have relativistic terms like that in the formula. So the light speed formula doesn't work when you've got very intense gravitational fields that come in. There will be. Okay. Terms that almost certainly look like one over c squared somewhere in it, because that's the way it always seems to to come up when you do these analyses. So Mm -hmm. that's um, the best of my knowledge at the moment, Bill. Uh, It's a great question, Uh, and if I was a specialist in you know relativity, I'd probably be able to give you a more cogent answer than that. But I think that's the line. I think that's the bottom line as to why you're not getting the right answer. Hmm.
0: Okay. Uh, Bill, if you want to look up what Fred looked up, you need, because it's about black holes, you need to look on the dark web. <laughs>
1: dear idea. dear. Yeah. I don't know whether
0: I'd advise anybody to go and look at the dark web. No, I
1: wouldn't go near the dark web. I wouldn't want either. to go near it either. <laughs> mm. It's a scary place. It so must on. be oh. and probably followed quickly by a knock on the door from some, yeah. some agency. The Australian or Federal, Federal Police. Federal Police, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, indeed.
0: Um, yeah, all right, Bill. Um, not sure we could no, hit the nail on the head
1: for you there. It wasn't the nail on the head. It was kind of hitting it uh, relativistically on the, on the head.
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, now, I, I did um, quickly, while you were doing all that really easy stuff, I looked up Ann Arbor, founded in 1824. I found this interesting, Fred. Ann Arbor was named after the wives of the village's founders whose um, wives were both named Ann. Oh, and the arbor bit, the arbor bit uh, refers to a stand of bur oak trees. Yes, lovely. Yeah. I thought it. And I be. do know, I do know, the PGA Tour plays uh, in that district every year. I, I'm pretty sure the golf, um, the golf goes there once a year. Um, but yeah, beautiful part of the world. Lots of water. Mm. All right, Bill. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, hope you're well. And thanks for sending in your question. That we couldn't do anything with much. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I did a I,
1: reasonable job on that,
0: Andrew. I think you did, yes. Your, your access to the dark web um, just surprises me greatly. It would surprise me too. <laughs> uh, just a reminder too, if you would like to send us some questions, we've got a whole bunch at the moment which we're working our way through. You just need to go to our website, spacenuts.io or spacenutspodcast.com and click on... The button on the right-hand side that says send us your voice message, you can do it that way, or you can hit the AMA tab. I'm doing this right now, and you just um, go from there where you can start recording. Press the start recording button and don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. Important safety tip, make sure you've got a device with a microphone because otherwise we'll just get blankness Which accounts for nearly half our questions. No, it doesn't. It accounts for most of the answers. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to send us a text question, you do that on the AMA tab as well. And while you're on the website, why not go to the Space Nuts shop? Because that's what Carl and Brian did, and they got their they got their shirts, and they got their Maseratis, and they got all their all in the Space Nuts shop. Just click on shop, and you'll find it there. Lots of goodies available there and if you're on the internet um, doing space stuff, go to our Ruz Space Nuts Facebook page because uh, we've got a big following there or you can join the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. That's a a user-generated page where you can all chat to each other and compare your astronomical photos or ask questions and get all sorts of inane answers and and some very good answers too but there are a few jokesters in there that I um, have seen from time to time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's always um, good fun to uh, to see what people are talking about on the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. Fred, we are done for another day. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Andrew.
1: It's been a delight not being able to answer people's questions. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, and that's, you know, and <laughs> after all these years, we are maintaining our standards. Yes, we are. yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Mediocre to the end. <laughs> yes, yes. It, um, we only strive to be adequate here at Space I Haven't said that for a very long time. I can hear a curlew in the background. You can, yeah, ones. there's
1: a curlew there. There's a curlew at the door. Yes, there is. There was somebody grabbing a <laughs> pair of binoculars to look at it.
0: <laughs> you check out the curlew. Let's yeah. listen to it. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Yeah, That there, there was one that lived in a tree across the road where I was growing up. And the blasted thing thought that um, doing that at 6 o'clock in the morning was really good. They do. They love it, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, so I've never been fond of them. But they have a very, very unusual call. Uh, Fred, until next time, uh, thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Look forward to it,
1: Andrew. Take care.
0: Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio who did absolutely nothing at all today. (laughs) as per usual. From me, Andrew Dunkley, until next time, uh, we'll see you on Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts.
1: You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This
1: has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.